0: Dear Father, I pray that this morning and this afternoon that the things that we will discuss will be true, that they will enhance and glorify your character, your person, and that we will understand far more than we do now these things, and that we will see that as we come closer to you, closer to your heart, to your mind, that our eyes will see and understand And that, again, our great desire is that your character will be seen on this earth. Amen. Well, I have to bring up here as a first point, because I think God, in giving the sacrificial system, wants to make very clear that we not misunderstand. Because as we'll talk about, um, Satan is very cunning, clever, crafty, subtle, and is always has running in parallel with the truth a counterfeit, all right? And it's uh, just diabolical, really. And so God wants, I think, to make very clear that we not miss the message of the sacrificial system. So does God desire sacrifice? Let's look through the multitude of verses here in the Old Testament and that Jesus quotes in the New Testament. Okay, we'll start with 1 Samuel 15. Samuel's words to Saul. What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? What is more pleasing? Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than offering the fat of rams. And this is uh, so interesting. Uh, Hebrew poetry is not based on rhyme, but on repetition. Um, You know, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's the repetition that's involved in the poetry. So as we look at the last half of this verse, uh, notice the two things that go together. Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Okay, obedience and sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than the offering of rams. So uh, the second line enhances, adds to the meaning of the first line. So listening goes with obedience. And, um, you know, again, as a parent, uh, I understand this now so well. We were just walking yesterday up here around uh, the mountains. And when I say to my son, listen, listen, it's obey. You know, don't go too close uh, to uh, that uh, drop off over there. Okay. so what is preferable to God? Obedience and that we listen. In Proverbs 21. Do what is right and fair. That pleases the Lord more than bringing him sacrifices. And so many of these verses in the Psalms. Boy, was David a man after God's own heart. He really had some insights for his time. You do not want sacrifices and offerings. You do not ask for animals burned whole on the altar or for sacrifices to take away sins. Instead, you have given me ears to hear you. And so I answered, here I am. Your instructions for me... Are in the book of the law, how I love to do your will, my God, I keep your teaching in my heart. And ultimately, this is a great truth. Where does God want the law? On stone tablets, on a wall somewhere, or written on our heart. Okay, that is the point, really, of this whole system. That is the end point. And in Psalms 50, I do not reprimand you because of your sacrifices and burnt offerings you always bring me. This is God talking. And yet, I do not need bulls from your farms or goats from your flocks. All the animals in the forest are mine and the cattle on thousands of hills. All the wild birds are mine and all living things in the fields. If I were hungry, I would not ask you for food, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Let the giving of thanks be your sacrifice to God and give the Almighty all that you promised.'" And the wonderful psalm, uh, Psalm 51, which uh, comes to this incredible point. You do not want sacrifices or I would offer them. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. My sacrifice is a humble spirit, O God. You will not reject a humble and repentant heart. Psalm 69, I will praise God with a song. I will proclaim his greatness by giving him thanks. This will please the Lord more than offering him cattle more than sacrificing a full-grown bull. It's not the ideal. As we've said, the ideal is very much there in the Old Testament all the way through. And this verse in Micah, um, we've referred to this several times, so important. What shall I bring to the Lord, the God of heaven, when I come to worship him? Shall I bring the best calves to burn as offerings to him? Will the Lord be pleased if I bring him thousands of sheep or endless streams of olive oil? Shall I offer him my firstborn child to pay for my sins? No, the Lord has told us what is good. What he requires of us is this, to do what is just, to do what is right, to show constant love, and to live in humble fellowship with our God. Now, do all these verses apply to us as the cross is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system? Do not these verses... Very much apply to us on the other side of the cross. This is what God wants. In Amos 5, some very hard words. The Lord says, I hate your religious festivals. I cannot stand them. When you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not accept the animals you have fattened to bring me as offerings. Stop your noisy songs. I do not want to listen to your harps. Instead, let justice flow like a stream and righteousness like a river that never goes dry. And do you hear the poetry there again? Let justice, right doing, flow like a stream, and righteousness like a river that never goes dry. In Hosea 6.6, I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. There it is again. Notice the parallelism. Constant love not animal sacrifices. I want my people to know me, not burn offerings. So the constant love goes with knowing God. And don't those two things go so well together? If we know the truth about God, if we know him as a friend, to know God is eternal life. Is there not this constant love very much involved as a part of that? And so Jesus, of course, came to these people who had misunderstood the sacrificial system. And he quoted these words of the Old Testament to remind them that they had missed the point. Go and find out what is meant by the scripture that says, it is kindness that I want, not animal sacrifices. Or as in the Amplified Version, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice and sacrificial victims. All right, but God gave the sacrificial system, did he not? All right, so if this is... uh, not what he desires, then what was the purpose of the sacrificial system? And let's just imagine here that uh, we're all the way back in the garden and um, Adam is given uh, the the sacrificial system. And we think about that first lamb that was killed. Um, Now, how do you imagine that Adam killed that first lamb? Did they have nice long swords? Um, back in the garden? Um, you know, did he beat it with a rock or, or how did he kill that lamb? I mean, it, it was a revolting experience, don't you think? That first time. By the time Jesus had come, it was a fine art. And Ellen White describes how they had this system down. They could slaughter the bulls um, and it would seem without much meaning. All right, But to Adam, what did it mean? Okay, would it not have been the most revolting experience that you can possibly imagine? And don't you think as Adam is killing that lamb, uh, he must have said to God, this is disgusting. All right? And don't you think God said, that's exactly the point. All right. So what was Adam to learn from all of this? Sin is horrible. Sin has horrible consequences. Sin and rebellion against God and His way leads to death. It was to make a very, very strong point about that. And so Paul in Hebrews 10 Says, as it is, however, the sacrifices serve year after year. For what purpose? To remind people of their sins. For the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. For this reason, when Christ was about to come into the world, he said to God, You do not want sacrifices and offerings, but you have prepared a body for me. You are not pleased with animals burned whole on the altar or with sacrifices to take away sins. Then I said, Here I am to do your will, O God. Just as is written of me in the book of the law, okay? It was a very, very it was to be a very strong reminder of sin, the consequences of sin, and uh, this uh, God seems to do this so often with with so many things. It is to point to the ideal and to the other side of the coin. What do we see at the cross? Greatest revelation of the kind of person God is, His character, His principle. What do we see on the flip side? The horrible, ugly nature of sin, rebellion, the character of Satan exposed, and we get the same thing here in the sacrificial system. Okay, we see the great malignity of sin, but we also see a hope for a remedy. Alright, and in the Old Testament times, you know, they had this idea also that there is hope for reconciliation, bringing us back to God. Okay, the two sides of the coin. And so when God gave, Uh, This system, which was to point to sin and also to point to bringing his people back to him. He said to Moses, the people must make a sacred tent for me so that I may live among them. It was to be a symbol of his presence with them. I will meet you there at set times and speak with you from above the atonement cover and from between the angel figures that are on it, speaking the commands that I have for the Israelites. And again, in Exodus 29, for all time to come, this burnt offering is to be offered in my presence at the entrance of the tent of my presence. This is where I will meet my people and speak to you. There I will meet the people of Israel and the dazzling light of my presence will make the place holy. All right now, there was a physical, visible, dazzling light of his presence. But remember, just right at this time, Moses asked to see the dazzling light of God's presence. What did he see? The Lord God is merciful, compassionate, long-suffering. All right, so let's also include the dazzling light of God's presence is the kind of person he is in character. I will live among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I could live among them. I am the Lord their God. And so in John 1... When we read that the Word became flesh and the Word dwelt among us, uh, it really says He tabernacled among us. Jesus came using the same kind of language here. Uh, God, He wanted to dwell with His people. Jesus came to dwell with His people. Um, Same kind of language. So in Revelation 21, what's it ultimately come down to? I heard a loud voice speaking from the throne, Now God's home is with people. He will live with them and they shall be his people. Isn't this what God has wanted all along? From the desert to Christ, and ultimately we will live face to face with God. That's the point. Now, what is the danger? Remember I said Satan has a counterfeit, a parallel, always trying to uh, confuse us with the point that God is trying to make. And... um, could give so many examples, but um, have you heard of the mystery religions that were so popular around the time of Christ? And um, these, it is just scary how this would parallel there was a dying, rising savior that was a very popular religious theme during this time. And that's why uh, many uh, religious scholars uh, will say that Christianity is just a mystery religion that has continued on. Now, we take the great controversy. We realize there is this war going on between Christ and Satan. The adversary is very active and uh, an intelligent person who is working against God. And so there is always a counterfeit trying to deceive us. What is the counterfeit um, that Satan has tried uh, to um, work against what God is trying to teach in the sacrificial system? Well... Turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 18. And this is the story of um, Elijah. And you remember the people coming up to the altar. The people are worshiping Baal. All right, and there is this great uh, conflict here between two pictures of God, really. And let's read about these um, prophets of Baal. Now, if you were to ask these people who are worshiping Baal, um, who are you worshiping? What would they say? Um, Well, they may use the name Baal. What do they mean by Baal? Well, we're worshiping God. Our God happens to be Baal. Now, if you would ask them, show me Baal, would they say, well, it's right here. It's this little relic. That's Baal. Wasn't the idol a symbol for the god behind the idol, all right? So they were worshiping God in their mind. His name happened to be Baal, all right? What is, how, how is the false god of uh, idolatry described all the way through the Bible? Uh, verse, let me see here, verse 26. Okay, so these priests, they took the bowl that was brought to them, prepared it, and prayed to Baal until noon. They shouted, answer us, Baal, and kept dancing around the altar they had built, but no answer came. At noon, Elijah started making fun of them. Pray louder. He is a god. Maybe he is daydreaming or relieving himself, or perhaps he's gone off on a trip, or maybe he's sleeping and you've got to wake him up. So the prophets prayed louder and cut themselves with knives and daggers according to their ritual, until blood flowed. They kept on ranting and raving until the middle of the afternoon, but no answer came. Not a sound was heard. Now, what is indicated by their worship of God? Why were they cutting themselves and letting the blood flow? (laughs) To appease Baal. And this is the number one theme of idolatry all the way through the Bible. These other gods who demanded the flesh uh, and demanded the blood It is an appeasement model, the counterfeit. All right. And so these people uh, were doing this in their mind to please their God who demanded these things. Remember, we read about uh, the king of Moab during this battle with Israel. He took his son up, his only son. Well, it doesn't say that, but he took his son up on the wall, killed his son. And the Israelites fled in terror because of the great act of appeasement to the God of Moab. Well, I'll go on a little bit further here in uh, First Kings 19, verse 18. And God said, Yet I will leave 7,000 people alive in Israel, all those who are loyal to me and have not bowed to Baal or kissed his idol. Again, the idol is a symbol that represents a picture of God that is behind that idol. And um, just on that theme, Paul, in talking about this in 1 Corinthians 8, if you turn over there, in talking about meat that is offered to idols, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4. So then, about eating the food offered to idols, we know that an idol stands for something that does not really exist. Okay, that's the whole point. An idol stands for something that does not really exist. We know that there is only one God. Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and even though there are many of these gods and lords, in quotation marks, yet there is for us only one God, the Father, who is the creator of all things, and for whom we live. So the idol, again, a symbol for something that does not exist. Now, have God's God's people um, ever, even using perhaps the right name, yet still been involved in idolatry? And uh, go to Hosea 7, very, very sad verse. Hosea 7, verse 13. God is talking about his people, and this is how he describes them. They are doomed. They have left me and rebelled against me. They will be destroyed. I wanted to save them, but their worship of me was false. They have not prayed to me sincerely. Now, how do they worship God in a false way? They have not prayed to me sincerely, but instead they throw themselves down and wail as the heathen do. When they pray for grain and wine, they gash themselves like pagans. What rebels they are. Does this not sound like these people dancing around the altar, the prophets of Baal? Why are they gashing themselves? Their, their worship of the true God is false because they have a false picture of God. And so when we read in Revelation, in Revelation 9, it talks about uh, after the, uh, uh, the plagues and yet the people persisted in the worship of their idols. Now, does this mean that in the end times everyone will be worshiping a little relic or does it not mean that the worship of god is false there's a false picture of god that is involved so yes greed and these other things are a form of idolatry but isn't is the world in the end going to be full of religious people or atheists it will be a very religious kind of battle and conflict all right so again i think that the, the point here is that idolatry the false worship Uh, It very much involves a false uh, picture of God. Well, I think we should first ask, as we get into the meaning of the sanctuary, uh, what is the temple? Now, this may seem like an obvious uh, point here. But when we consider, and as we talk about the temple being cleansed, um, I think it's important that we understand what we're talking about. And so, of course, there are physical temples. Okay, the tabernacle in the wilderness, Solomon's temple. Okay, those are long gone, right? Uh, Ezekiel's temple, incredible temple that was never built, and then Herod's temple, right? But there are also spiritual temples. All right, Jesus, he answered, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it again. Are you going to build it again in three days? They asked him. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, this physical building. But the temple Jesus was speaking about was his body. So when he was raised from death, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and what Jesus had said. Now, listen very carefully to these next several verses. I think it is very important as we try to understand the cleansing of the temple. What is the temple? In First Peter 3, Come to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the people, but he is precious to God who chose him. And now God is building you as living stones into his spiritual temple. We are stones in this temple built upon the cornerstone, Christ. Okay, and in Revelation 3.12, I will make those who are victorious pillars in the temple of my God and they will never leave it. We are stones in the temple. We are pillars in the temple. And I should have included and maybe just have you add here as we're going through three times in Revelation, we are priests in the temple. We're stones, we're pillars, we're priests in the temple. And in Ephesians 2, you too are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Christ Jesus himself he is the one who holds the whole building together and makes it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. In union with him, you two are being built together with all the others into a place where God lives through his spirit. Okay, Again, the ideal, but notice the symbolism here again. We're stones in this temple built upon the cornerstone. All right, and then Paul just gets right to the point so that we don't miss it. Surely you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys God's temple for God's temple is holy and you yourselves are his temple. Now, what part of our body is the temple? The heart, the mind, the whole body. Now, I have to tell you, I have a patient Uh, And this is a very tragic story, but he was involved in a motor vehicle accident. uh, This is quite some time ago. And uh, he lost both of his legs um, in this accident, very, very high up. And um, he also suffered a very severe, uh, high spinal cord injury in the neck. And he has minimal use of two fingers in his right hand. And because of complications of all of this, he's unable to eat and he is fed uh, directly into his stomach uh, by a tube. Now, is his body a temple? Would I tell him, these words don't apply to you. You're not a temple. Is he a temple? What part, Now, I can't give him specific advice about exercise and diet. Is his body a temple? Yes. Where's the temple? Where is the communication between our God? Where do we choose? between serving the true God, knowing him as a friend, or going after the false other gods in our mind, where we choose, where we freely, out of the highest sense of freedom, choose to love and obey our God. So ultimately, our mind is the temple. Yes, our whole body is the temple, but uh, the, the spiritual temple in the mind, I think, is the key point. Okay, and We read on in First Corinthians 6, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? Where does the Holy Spirit live in us when he comes into us? In our intelligent, our mind, where we decide for God. The Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. And in 2 Corinthians 6, for we are the temple of the living God. As God himself has said, I will make my home with my people and live among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And finally, in Hebrews 3, verse 6, we are his house if we keep up our courage and our confidence in what we hope for. Now, does this give us some ideas about um, what has been defiled? Our picture of God, the lies, the misrepresentations about our God, what needs to be cleansed? Well, how did Ellen White understand these things? First, let's let let's read here uh, some verses in Exodus 25 that I think will uh, enhance on this. Here, and he's talking about Mount Sinai, that by the manifestation of his glory, God sought to impress Israel with the holiness of his character and requirements and the exceeding guilt of transgression. I'm sorry, this, this whole passage here is uh, from the book Education, page 34. So... Let's just start again, because I want to make sure this is a very important uh, passage here. At Mount Sinai, by the manifestation of his glory, God sought to impress Israel with the holiness of his character and requirements and the exceeding guilt of transgression. Again, the two sides. He wants us to see the ideal. He wants us to see where things lead going in the other direction. But the people were slow to learn the lesson. Accustomed as they had been in Egypt to material representations of the deity. What does that sound like? And these of the most degrading nature, it was difficult for them to conceive of the existence or of the character of the unseen one. In pity for their weakness. How many times yesterday his heart was filled with great pity. In pity for their weakness, God gave them a symbol of... Of his presence. Let them make me a sanctuary, he said, that I may dwell among them. In the building of the sanctuary as a dwelling place for God, Moses was directed to make all things according to the pattern of things in the heavens. God called him into the mount and revealed to him the heavenly things, and in their similitude the tabernacle with all that pertained to it was fashioned. So to Israel, whom he desired to make his dwelling place, He revealed his glorious ideal of character. Okay, what part of our body is involved in character development? The mind. The pattern was shown them on the mount when the law was given from Mount Sinai and when God passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Again, this is the dazzling light of God's presence. Through Christ was to be fulfilled the purpose of which the, sanctu- the tabernacle was a symbol. That glorious building, its walls of glistening gold reflecting in rainbow hues, the curtains inwrought with cherubim, the fragrance of ever-burning incense pervading all, the priests robed in spotless white and in the deep mystery of the inner place above the mercy seat between the figures of the bowed worshiping angels, the glory of the holiest in all, God desired his people to read his purpose for the human soul. What does she mean by the human soul? I would say again, the mind. Again, I hope I'm not, as a neurologist, biasing everything to the mind, but what would she mean by the human soul? It was the same purpose long afterwards set forth by the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. All right, so thus, in labor and in giving, they were taught to cooperate with God and with one another, and they were to cooperate also in the preparation of the spiritual building, which is God's temple in the soul. All right. Now, I want you, with this in mind, to turn to 2 Thessalonians. This is in your handout from yesterday. God wants to be in the mind. Where does Satan want to be? Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. where Paul says, Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the final rebellion takes place and the wicked one appears who is destined to hell. He will oppose every so-called God or object of worship and will put himself above them all. He will even go in and sit down in God's temple and claim to be God. Now, when we read in Revelation that everyone worshipped the beast. Uh, and we, we read here about the wicked one going in and sitting down in God's temple. Is he going to heaven and kicking our God off his throne and sitting down? Um, is it a physical building that he sits down in, in heaven? Or is not Satan here in bringing everyone into his picture, his false picture of God, ultimately to worship him? Is he not sitting down in the minds of people who agree with his picture of God, as the Pharisees did? Well, let's let's paint another picture of this. Go back to Daniel eight, some uh, verses that we're very familiar with. Daniel eight verse nine, and we read in this passage about the uh, the very very dark. Time when God was forgotten for 1,260 years. Daniel 8, verse 9. Out of one of these four horns grew a little horn whose power extended toward the south and the east and toward the promised land. It grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven. Some versions say it humiliated the heavenly army and dishonored its leader. Okay, it grew strong enough to attack. The army of heaven. Now, during this time, was the army of heaven in a physical way attacked? Well, read on. And the stars themselves. And it threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them. It even defied the prince of the heavenly army and stopped the daily sacrifices offered to him and ruined the temple. Okay, what happened during this time? Was there a true knowledge of Of God was not God entirely misrepresented, and in this sense, the Prince of the Heavenly Army, God Himself, He was dishonored, as some verses say. Um, Again, not a physical battle fought with tanks and lightning bolts, but this is a battle in the mind of God's people. All right, and so when Jesus, when He sent out the seventy disciples, and they're going out, they're going out and preaching the good news. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Did Satan at that time when the 70 disciples went out in a physical sense fall? No, he was defeated in the minds of the people. All right. So all of this, I think, is is very much referring to the same thing. So as we turn over here to the next page, what is the result then? If all of this war, this battle is going on within the minds of, of God's people, and we are free to choose. And we'll come back to this, but what is the point of the cleansing of the sanctuary? We read in Hebrews 9, seeing that that first tabernacle was a parable, a visible symbol or type or picture of the present age, in it gifts and sacrifices are are offered and yet are incapable of perfecting the conscience. Or of cleansing and renewing the inner man of the worshiper. Where is our conscience cleansed? Where are we renewed? The inner man of the worshiper. Okay, and we read on in Hebrews 9, 14. But how much more will the blood of Christ make our consciences clean from dead human efforts so that we can worship the living God? What has defiled our mind? Lies about the kind of person God is. What would cleanse our mind? Well, read in Malachi 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the Messiah whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger or angel of the covenant whom you desire, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the priests. Who are the priests? God's people are the priests to purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Okay, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so on this verse, and I'll conclude with this, Ellen White as she describes Jesus coming into the physical building, the temple, Okay, she describes the meaning of this whole uh, of what he was accomplishing. Okay, this is in Desire of Ages. In the cleansing of the temple, Jesus was announcing his mission as the Messiah. What mission? And entering upon his work, that temple erected for the abode of the divine presence was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and for the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being from the bright and holy seraph to man should be a temple for the indwelling of the creator. We are to be that temple. The the physical temple was to teach us about the temple of our mind. God designed that the temple of Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. Again, what does she mean by the word soul? But the Jews did not understand the significance of the building they regarded with so much pride. They did not yield themselves as holy temples for the divine spirit. They did not yield themselves as temples. The courts of the temple at Jerusalem, filled with the tumult of unholy traffic, represented all too truly the temple of the heart, temple of the mind, defiled by the presence of sensual passion and unholy thoughts. In cleansing the temple from the world's buyers and sellers, Jesus announced his mission to cleanse the heart from the defilement of sin, the mind, from the earthly desires, the selfish lusts, the evil habits that corrupt the soul. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, that's you and I, and purge them as gold and silver. Okay, and she quotes now 1 Corinthians 3. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. No man can of himself, cast out the evil throng that have taken possession of the heart. Only Christ can cleanse the soul temple, but he will not force an entrance. He comes not into the heart as to the temple of old, but he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. He will come Not for one day merely, for he says, I will dwell in them and walk in them and they shall be my people. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. His presence will cleanse and sanctify the soul so that it may be a holy temple unto the Lord and habitation of God through the spirit. Is this not very compelling about what needs to be cleansed. And I would say not only do we need to be cleansed of the lies and distortions in the picture of God. And again, as we see clearly, as that veil is removed, what did we read in Second Corinthians 3? When the veil is removed, we become changed. We become reflectors of the character of God. But also from a heavenly perspective, um, whose character has been maligned God, God's character ultimately will be cleansed. He will be vindicated. And in the end, every knee will bow. Okay, not because of intimidation and we're scared to death, but in great recognition that God himself is holy, just. His character is vindicated. And um, I think at that point we will all say an enemy has done this. And... um, Uh, none of the sin and the suffering of this world will fall at the hands of our God. Well, we are from this point, starting this afternoon, going to go through very specifically because this whole sanctuary system from the outer court to the inner court to the holy place to the most holy place is very, very instructive for us of our walk with God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we invite you into our minds just now. And we know that uh, this, this wonderful, knowing, intimate friendship with you will be such a wonderful experience. Thank you, God, that you left heaven. You left the most holy place. You came out, and you came out to show us the way back in. May we follow you. And come back into your presence. And like Moses, may we see you face to face. Amen.